Hi everyone, happy Sunday and welcome to Fair Voice. I'm your host, Hannah Syriac. Fair Voice is affiliated with Fair Mormon, but my opinions are my own. They are not the opinions necessarily of the Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, or Fair Mormon, the organization. Welcome to today's podcast. Today's podcast should be super interesting. I'm sure that this is going to be a hot topic for a lot of you. We're going to talk about polygamy. So I'll first introduce polygamy by telling you about the three different types, um, the three different words that I'll use to describe it throughout this episode and talk a bit about my personal experience before launching into a scriptural defense of polygamy, which is what I want to do today. So polygamy, it comes from two Greek words. It basically just means many marriages. Um, You can also have polyandry, which is multiple husbands. It just comes from the Greek word that means many, and then andra, which is the Greek word that means man, and then you have polygyny, which comes from, again, the Greek word that means many, and then it comes from the Greek word gune, which means wife, the upsilon, which is a U sound sort of deal, switches to a Y within our English language, um, so this means multiple wives. So polygyny, polyandry, <laughs> happen within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints history, Um, but we often just refer to them as polygamy. Polygamy is the standard word that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uses. So let's talk a bit about my personal experience with polygamy. I know that's a very misleading way of putting it, but let's just dive right into it. So I am obviously not married, Um, but let's talk a bit about why polygamy has been so stigmatized. I feel like we have a different cultural definition of marriage. Our cultural definition of marriage is often that marriage is for the purpose of love. And hear me out, marriage is about love, but it's not just merely about the love between the two people. It's about the love between God and the two people, right? So there is this element of marriage that I think we are missing in a secular sphere. I would say, this is a very controversial opinion, I understand, I would say that marriage is between man, woman, and God, and then everything else is a civil union. Um, I don't particularly see marriage as existing outside of religion, but it's the word that we use. Um, However, let's talk a bit about my personal experience with understanding the church's history uh, behind polygamy. So, I first heard that Joseph Smith and Brigham Young had multiple wives, and I didn't really think it was that big of a deal. I thought it was a little bit weird. I hadn't heard that people had multiple wives. It kind of struck me as a bit odd. I was like, wow, what does that mean? Um, But I kind of went on my merry way, and I was like, okay, that's cool. Um, I heard a bit more about it when I was older. I heard that Joseph Smith had a 14-year-old wife, and that struck me as a bit more problematic. And then I found out that you know, they didn't consummate the marriage necessarily, and that the purpose of polygamy was not for sexual pleasure, but it is for the exaltation of the people involved. And at that point, I was like, okay, cool. That's totally fine. And for me, polygamy wasn't a problem because God ordained it. And for me, that's all it took, um, is that God ordaining it. I was like, okay, that's totally fine. But let's talk about the blessings that are sealed to us and how we can understand polygamy in a way that I think is very helpful if you struggle with it. So my exposure to understanding polygamy in a deeper context was by reading the book Nauvoo Polygamy. Nauvoo Polygamy is a really good book. I think 
it is one of the more neutral books about polygamy. It's by George Smith. Um, he goes through all different accounts of polygamous marriages, particularly with Joseph Smith. And he talks a lot about the Joseph Fanny um, instance where we don't necessarily know that Joseph and Fanny were married. There was this instance where I believe it was Oliver Cowdery claimed to have seen them together. I'm sorry if I got that wrong. I didn't write it down in my notes. But someone claimed to have seen them together. We weren't sure if they were married. Fanny Algers is the name. And then after that, Joseph Smith received the revelation to marry multiple women. Um, one of the explanations that I have heard that has really helped me understand polygamy more than I, I used to was this explanation that was first introduced to me by Brent Top. So what he says is he really capitalizes on this idea that polygamy was to necessitate the ordinance of exaltation unto everyone. So when we talk about different ordinances, I think it's important that we think about the way that ordinances are done for baptisms of the dead. Okay, so when you go to the temple and you're baptized for the dead, the dead person, we don't bring the dead person's body into the font. We are baptized by proxy for them. So when we're sealed, we're sealed for ourselves, but we can also be sealed by proxy. I think the very nature of ordinances for the dead exemplifies to us that what matters is the ordinance and covenant, not necessarily the person involved. We can do things in the name of a particular person, and that'll be completely valid for them. So when we talk about polygamy and we talk about sealings, I think something that's really important to perhaps consider is that the ordinance of being sealed to someone does not necessitate that you will be sealed to multiple people in the next life. I think when we talk about when we talk about having multiple different wives in the next life, that is not something that we necessarily know. Certain church leaders have speculated that that will be the case. I think it's pretty well substantiated that Brigham Young's wives believe that they would be sealed to him in the next life, but that's not something that we necessarily know. One possible explanation for polygamy is that what mattered was that these women received this ordinance that would that would guarantee their exaltation. Now you might be wondering, okay, Hannah, we believe that we can be sealed in the next life. Why wouldn't these women just have the opportunity to wait for the next life? I think on a practical level, though, all of us want that feeling of assurance that we can receive exaltation. And because of the nature of marriage within the church doctrine, it is necessary for us to be married to be exalted. So I think a very simple explanation for polygamy is to give people the assurance of exaltation. Again, I don't know whether or not there'll be polygamy in the next life. Church leaders have certainly suggested that there will be. For now, we believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. One man, one woman is the doctrine of marriage that is the eternal truth of marriage that does not necessarily mean that there will not be polygamy in the next life but it doesn't mean that there will be and i think the attitude that i have chosen to take towards it has been very helpful for me which is that at least we can see that polygamy exists within the scriptures we can see that certain accounts of women enjoyed polygamy certain accounts of women show that they definitely did not but it depends on who you talk to and that god as a sovereign authority has the best way to maximize our happiness. And I know it might sound cheesy, but I truly believe that if there is polygamy in the next life, that it will be for our eternal joy and our eternal increase. Um, and I understand that that statement can be quite off-putting to many people, but I do trust that God 
will sanctify every single union that he ordains. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, Polygamy is a very tricky issue for many people because oftentimes it is a man having multiple partners. But I want to talk about the, the notion of marriage real quick because I think this will resolve a lot of our concerns. I think we have entered into a sphere where we view marriage in two different ways that are both harmful. We view marriage as exclusively for sex or as having sex be the major part of it or we view marriage as being about romantic love. These two modern notions, I think undermine the entire purpose of marriage, which is two people coming together in order to give themselves to each other, but more importantly, to give themselves to God. If we understand marriage in that light instead, I think we have a better understanding of why polygamy would be important for the saints, because it goes back to that priesthood ordinance to seal blessings to us, not to seal a specific person to us, right? Because if you listen to the language of the sealing ordinance, yes, you you seal you, you, you are sealed with blessings, but you are not necessarily sealed to each other, barring everything. There are specific instances in which sealings can be broken off, and there are specific instances in which parties can cancel their sealings. And I think it's important that we keep in mind that exaltation, yes, it is about the person we are sealed to to a degree, but it is more about our relationship with God. And our relationship with God is established through ordinances and covenants. Now, when we talk about marriage in that way, I think this can resolve a lot of the different concerns that people have about marriage, uh, about polygamy within the church. So let's just get this one out of the way. The one that everyone brings up is Helena Mar Kimball. So for those of you who don't know who Helena Mar Kimball is, um, Helena Mar Kimball is a 14-year-old who Joseph Smith was sealed to. Oftentimes, people will say that this is an instance of pedophilia. This is one of the largest critiques of the church that there is so far. And I'm going to talk about why I don't necessarily think that this is problematic. She was certainly on the younger side for marriage. She got married when she was approximately 14.8 years old. But if we look at sources from her, from, from around her, we see that she was considered far more mature Um, She says this herself in 1842, that she was considered far more mature than other people around her. And then if we read within within her journals, we see that she did have some mixed feelings about the marriage, but it didn't seem that she consummated the marriage. Not that I think that necessarily is an important point, because it's not completely out of the way for people who are aged 15 to 19 to be married. Um, fertility rates for women aged 15 to 19 were higher than fertility rates of people who married later. So again, this is on the younger side, but it's not completely out of line because she did, by our standards, most likely have achieved maturity enough for marriage. Of course, society is different now. We get married a lot later than we used to. Um, but it doesn't seem to be that out of line. And the important parts that we know um, are there's no evidence that she was that she consummated the marriage, but even if she did, it's not a problem. And she continued to live with her parents 
after the sailing, and then she married someone else when she hit age 16. So this example of polygamy that most people use is not really a solid one because we don't even think that she consummated it. If she did, it's totally fine. They were married. Despite being on the younger side of maturity, we have instances where we are sure that she was mature enough to be married. What matters for maturity, just to be frank, within this circle is whether or not a woman is menstruating because that shows whether or not you are able to have children according to biology and according to biological perceptions at that time. So when we think about it, this is not a perfect example to use because we don't even know if they consummated the marriage, but we don't have any evidence that they did. And even if they did, again, it's not really that big of a problem. So when Helen spoke about the marriage, what she said was, I did not try to conceal the fact of it having been a trial, but confessed it had been one of the severest of my life, but that it had also proven one of the greatest of blessings. I could truly say it had done the most towards making me a saint and a free woman in every sense of the word, and I knew many others who could say the same and to whom it had proven one of the greatest boons of blessing in disguise, end quote. So when we talk about marriage within When we talk about polygamy within the early church stages, I think some important things that we need to remember is that polygamy often afforded women more freedom than it did other instances of marriage because they were able to raise children in a communal setting because they were able to have more of the familial and household duties split amongst themselves. They had more time to pursue hobbies and more time to pursue education. This might seem trite, but considering the 1800s and the what was going on at that time, you have the Industrial Revolution, you have families who are being strained for income, and you also have lack of birth control access, which means a lot more kids than we're used to having. This afforded women more time and more energy to spend in their creative endeavors. And I think if we look at the early church period, we see that women were able to produce more literature, were able to produce more artwork, were able to produce more service for other individuals, in part because of polygamy. And that's one of the blessings of polygamy, is that women had more freedom in a polygamous system than outside of it. That might strike us as odd because we have all of these constructs around the idea of marriage, but because God ordained it, we can see that women were made more free under a polygamous system, and clearly it was not all about sex, as critics claim, because Joseph and Brigham Young did not consummate all of their polygamous marriages. That is something that we know that they did not do with all of them. So it, it was clearly something ordained by God. Of course, it did not happen perfectly. It did not happen without its faults, Um you know, we have instances where Emma Smith was quite upset about the way that polygamy was going. And I don't wish to downplay that, but I do wish to emphasize that God can sanctify everything for the good of those who love him. And that I'm sure that that was a massive trial, but at the same time, we see clearly that God ordained it. So when I say that God ordained it, what do I mean? So let's go back a little bit further to the institution of marriage. So the institution of marriage occurs in Genesis 1 and 2. We see that Adam and Eve are created for each other and then put into a marriage partnership. This shows us that marriage is at its core between one man and one woman, but also God. That marriage is that triangle model where it's two people who try to find God and end up finding each other. 
And I saw, uh, just as a side note, I saw one of my friends post the other day that every single time he looked for God, he saw his wife. And I feel like that's just a perfect statement about marriage. Every time that you look for God, you'll find your spouse. Um, and I just love that. But anyways, so Genesis 1 and 2, institution of marriage. But then you get to Genesis 4, and you see that Lamech has taken two wives. And that's the first instance of polygamy within the Hebrew Bible. So let's go on a little bit further to what happens with polygamy in the Hebrew Bible. You have um, Solomon, who has polygamy. Um, and then you also have Moses. And it isn't until Deuteronomy 17, 17 that we see that kings are forbidden from having many wives and that reads um and he being the king shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold that's the first direct commandment against polygamy but again that doesn't apply to necessarily everyone so we see that there's polygamy regulated within the hebrew bible because leviticus 18:18 talks about how women uh sorry how men should not take two sisters as wives and deuteronomy 21 15 also talks about having multiple wives so we can see that there is instances of polygamy within the hebrew bible that seem to be ordained by god and then once you get to the greek new testament you see that polygamy fades away there's a lot of between between even like the leviticus period to the Christian period, I'll, I'll just say the early Christian period, let's talk about early Christian period, you see that there is rabbinic commentary on why polygamy is not a good idea. So you do see a movement in Judaism away from polygamy and towards monogamy. And within the Christian New Testament, we really do see that there is direct commandments that say that monogamy is the way to go. It talks often about the relationship between Christ and the church as being a marriage relationship. This is described in monogamous terms in Timothy. We also see marriage described in monogamous terms. Corinthians is another good example where that happens too. So you don't really see polygamy within the early Christian Testament. But if we go to Jacob, this is the famous, this is the famous Book of Mormon instances about polygamy. If we go to Jacob, we can read a bit about that. So let's turn all over to, I believe it's Jacob 2, where, yeah, it's Jacob 2. Um, let's read it. Wherefore, my brethren, hear me and hearken to the word of the Lord. For there shall not be any man among you have, save it be one wife and concubines, he shall have none. For I, the Lord God, delight in the chastity of women, and whoredoms are an abomination before me, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Wherefore, this people shall keep my commandments, saith the Lord of hosts, or cursed be the land for their sakes. For if I will, saith the Lord host, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people. Otherwise, they shall hearken unto these things. So here we see that monogamy is considered the general programming of the, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But polygamy can be commanded for specific instances. So if we go back to the Hebrew Bible, I think it's perfectly acceptable to have polygamy within the Hebrew Bible because there's concerns about the fertility of women, there's concerns about the fertility of men, there's concerns about the protection of women, right? Because 
we live in a modern society where women can live a good life by themselves. I could, I'm not married, so I could conceivably not be married. I could live in my cute little apartment for the rest of my life, have a dog or something like that, and enjoy my life and be a fulfilled person and work towards marriage, of course. But if I didn't get married in this life, I could get married in the next life and it would be fine for me in this life. However, that was not always the case. It used to be especially in ancient times, that if women were not married, that they would have to beg for food. Because the way that the way that women were treated in the ancient world, generally, and this does not apply to every single culture, but particularly within Judaism, particularly within Greco-Roman circles, which are the ones that we effectively care about for this discourse, because we're talking about Judeo-Christianity. Anyways, so the ones that we care about for this discourse are, this is the effective treatment of them. So they were born to a mother and father and their father would basically regulate their affairs until they were married. So they were passed from their father to their husband. And if their father died and they were not married and they were on the older side, they would have to beg for food. They would probably not be taken in a lot of the time. There are instances that we read about widows um, begging for food within the Greek New Testament. And we can see that that's the same for women who are not married. Marriage was a very big status defining symbol. Um, It was the way that women got taken care of. And there's a lot of different reasons for this, especially if we go if we go back further to the time of Adam and Eve, we don't know much about that at all. But the reason that women were married was for protection. That's one of the main reasons, like it or not, for the institution of marriage on a practical level within early civilizations. So then let's let's talk about polygamy with that. So you have instances where women don't have the opportunity to advance socially. They don't have the opportunity to advance fiscally. They can't exactly go out and get a job. So polygamy comes in handy in those instances in ancient times because women could then effectively be taken care of. This shows an additional purpose of marriage. One of the additional purposes of marriage is the giving of self. So men would give of themselves financially, protection-wise to women, and women would give of themselves to men. So it's that reciprocal giving relationship that we oftentimes don't talk about when we talk about marriage nowadays. We focus so much on the romantic notion of it that we lose out on the part of self-sacrifice that I think is really important and enables us to understand polygamy a lot better. Now let's return to our discussion of polygamy in the early church days. I think it's really important to keep in mind that, so so just for, for background, polygamy really is inspired by Doctrine and Covenants 132. That's when Joseph Smith received the revelation. But there are a couple important factors to keep this in mind. One is that By 1857, around one half of all Utah Latter-day Saints experienced polygamy in some way, shape, or form, but there was not a universal ratio of men to women, and women had consent available to them to choose their spouses, which I think this is a really big point, because we often take for granted that we choose our spouses, okay? So we often take for granted that we have a dating and courtship period where we're able to get to know our spouse. We're able to see whether or not we love them. We're able to experience feelings with them. We're able to experience different activities with them and determine whether or not this is someone we can spend the rest of our lives with. However, that's not how the institution of marriage has always worked. That is a relatively modern invention. Spending time with someone before you marry them is a pretty radical idea, at least time that is unsupervised. 
back in the day, marriage was done in the following way. You would have a courtship period where you would get to know the person a little bit, but your family would pretty much choose them for you if you were a woman. If you were a man, I, I assume that you had a little bit more freedom in choosing your spouse than women did. And then you would basically marry them without really knowing them. So this was a radical idea in the 1800s. It was pretty revolutionary. It was pretty new. It was in other places too. It wasn't just like Latter-day Saints were like, ah, yeah, we're the first people to choose our spouses. That's not how that worked, but it was definitely a radical idea. And I think that this is incredibly important to keep in mind is that consent was valued within polygamous relationships. You had the opportunity to divorce. Um, even Joseph Smith asked for consent from people like Helena Mark Kimball. And we can see that she says that she wrestles with the idea of con giving consent and some have called that her being upset that she has to enter into this marriage, but she does not seem to categorize it in this way. So I don't want to automatically assume that she was lying about her experience. I think that's also disingenuous. We, we do see that some women felt pressure to accept these unions because they came from the prophet. But again, I think it's hard to speak in broad strokes about this. And I think we can say this, is that polygamy was ordained by the Lord that women could choose to get divorced, women could choose the marriages that they entered into. Not all of them worked out, and not all of them are great, but that is true of every single type of marriage. I know a lot of people who are married, and most of them have really good marriages. Some end in divorce. My parents are divorced, so I understand that situation quite well. Um, but I think the important thing to keep in mind is that a lot of women did end up liking polygamy because of the social freedom that I talked about earlier, and that the Lord did ordain it for this time period. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. They're moving out to a new place. There isn't a lot of land that they have developed in the way that they were used to having land developed. Um, and they needed to have families being started because they were running away from each other. And the reason that polygamy is often from man to a man with multiple women as opposed to a woman with multiple men, it, it, men is not so much a sexual one but so much a practical one because you can't as a man get pregnant you can only get pregnant as a woman so if you're going to have it be for the purpose of raising up seed as we see in jacob 2 it makes perfect sense for a man to be married to multiple women because then you can have multiple women pregnant and multiple women raise up seed. So let's talk about the end of polygamy. So the end of polygamy was in 1862 the u.s government and um basically started to pass laws against the practice of plural marriage. I believe that polygamy ended in the church in September 1890, um, officially, and this was Declaration 2. I'll correct myself if I'm wrong. I'm sorry that if, if I'm wrong, but I believe it was Declaration 2. It's hard for me to keep track of all of them, and I didn't write down my notes. So we had the end of polygamy at that time period. Going back to the idea that marriage should be between a man and a woman and God. So now we get to an interesting place, right? Because, uh, sorry, yes, it is the second manifesto. I just looked it up. It's the second manifesto. But we get to an interesting place with polygamy because this has brought up the question of will there be polygamy in the next life? Because Brigham Young's wives in particular, that's the best example for me. We have journal entries of them saying that they believed that they would be married to Brigham Young in the next life. 
However, we do have as our doctrine that marriage is between one man and a woman. How do we reconcile this? There are a couple different explanations. The first is the one that I explained earlier, which is that marriage is between one man and a woman, but the man and the woman, not to sound horrible, but the man and the woman don't necessarily matter. It doesn't necessarily matter who you're married to. And of course, it matters on an emotional level. It matters on a mental level. But in terms of achieving exaltation, that's all I mean is that you could be married to, as Spencer W. Kimball says, you can be married to any good Latter-day Saint and you will be exalted with them. So on a practical level, we could say that this form of polygamy was to ensure the exaltation of people because having that assurance in this life, especially after you've crossed the plains and you're in a new place and you're feeling really, really displaced from society and you're trying to figure out how to Christian, how to Latter-day Saint, because, you know, you, you don't have everything revealed yet. We still don't have everything revealed yet, but this is a relatively new church. You're trying to figure all that out. Having the assurance of exaltation that comes, DNC 132 again, through the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. By the way, short pet peeve, the new and everlasting covenant can refer to multiple different ordinances. It's not just marriage. You see this phrase used in the Greek New Testament to refer to the sacrament. Back to the original point. Just thought that was a fun tidbit. Um, so this could be to ensure the exaltation of people. And in that sense, we would still have monogamy as the eternal standard, but polygamy acts as a way to ensure the exaltation. And we believe that God will figure it out in the next life. Um, another possible explanation is some that church leaders have famously suggested, which is that there might be polygamy in the next life. If that is the case, I'm sure that God will consecrate those unions. And I think the important part to keep in mind is that God does sanctify everything for the good of those who love him. And I think that we will be happier in the next life than we are now. Um, I personally don't have a stance on what's going to happen in the next life. I think either are going to be okay. Um, whatever happens, plug me or not, I think we have to keep a couple things in mind. And the first thing that we need to keep in mind is this quote from Valerie Hutton really hammers it into me. So well, let's keep, I'll read it. During the period of time when the restored church was commanded by the Lord to practice polygamy, some practiced it without any discernible hardship and still others with great pain. Contemporary church members may look back upon that period with acceptance or indifference or discomfort. And I would like to say at the onset that I don't see that diversity of feelings is harmful, that people differ in the reactions to polygamy. I don't think that is the issue. Rather, since the new and everlasting of covenant of marriage is at the heart of the work of eternal life and godhood, confusion about the nature and form of lawful marriage ordained by God is harmful, end quote. For me, what really sticks out here is that at the heart of work of eternal life and godhood is marriage. That's the idea that really sticks out to me. So I think we've got to keep in mind that because marriage is so central to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to the restored gospel, to the work that we are all engaging in, that having that assurance that you will be exalted in the next life because of the covenants that you made would be integral and vital for most members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, especially those early day saints. Another thing to keep in mind is that God does consecrate everything. I think oftentimes critics will say that we need to have a perfect history or we need uh, or we need to have things completely explained or spelled out but what we can say is that we can look at the evidences of polygamy we can see that a lot of freedom was granted particularly to women we can see that a lot of people enjoyed polygamy a lot of people didn't enjoy polygamy there's stuff on both sides 
But we can see evidences that it can work and we can pray for a spiritual witness. I think that it would be dishonest of me and of anyone to say that we can definitively prove something is going to happen in the next life based on empirical evidence or based on anything but the union of empirical evidence with a spiritual witness. And I think that that's the, the purpose of faith, right? So faith to me is taking the evidences that we have. And some of those evidences do include people liking polygamy, praying about whether or not that's acceptable and receiving a spiritual witness, a testimony that polygamy was in fact ordained of God. And I think that that's the best way to do it. I'm not going to be one of those people who thinks that we can definitively prove anything because I don't think that's true of anything. I, I am of the opinion that without spiritual witnesses, we cannot determine the truth of all things. And I know that that's a controversial opinion for a lot of critics of the church, but I think it's an honest one that I will have that criticism levied against me time and time again. But I want to turn back to my philosophy of understanding the world, which is that there are a lot of evidences out there and there's going to be contradictory evidence about everything. You know, people will, outside of the church especially, will say, but wine is good for you. That's a that's an example. Or, but coffee is good for you. You can see that there's evidence that suggests that coffee is good for you. That is true. But there's also evidence that suggests that coffee is not good for you or that wine is not good for you. Things are not so simplistic that there is one monolith of science, one monolith of history, one monolith of evidence that suggests one thing. Evidence can be interpreted differently. It comes from different contexts that are difficult to understand. And that's the importance of a spiritual witness, right? Because we can have evidences that suggest historicity of a particular text or that suggest that, you know, in the case of polygamy, that something worked for particular people. But what matters is the validation of that evidence. And the validation of that evidence has to be an external source. And the external source that I think is the most telling is the existence of the Holy Spirit which is different than confirmation bias and it is different than the spirit that you feel when something is good. I think we all know that there is a discernible difference between a validation of truth by the Holy Spirit, which is in your mind and in your heart, than just confirmation bias, which is often only in one or the other. But that's my philosophical approach to the world. Back to polygamy. So when people ask me, you know, Hannah, why isn't polygamy a problem for you? Here's what I would say. I would say, first off, the doctrine of marriage is between one man and one woman. Second off, I would say that polygamy was ordained at particular times. It was not ordained the entire time the church has been around or the entire time in the Hebrew Bible or the entire time in the Greek New Testament. The other thing that I would say is that the relationship that people point to as being nefarious, the one between Helena Mar Kimball and Joseph Smith, we don't even know if they consummated the marriage, even if they did, it's fine, that she was of the age of menstruation, that she was on the younger side, but not completely out of the question, and that she consented to the marriage. And after the marriage, she described it as one of the greatest blessings of her own life. I think it's really problematic to rewrite her experience as many people have decided to do. Many, many critics of the church, I see them do this with the experience of Latter-day Saints. They say that they experience a type of confirmation bias. They experience a type of being so internal, having so much internalized that they act in a particular way. I think that's really disingenuous to and prideful to think that you are so enlightened that you can transcend that internalization, but other people can't. Just pointing that out, I think that that's a disingenuous way to rewrite history. We can see that, yes, polygamy is problematic for some different people, but women did have the option to divorce freely within Utah, and I think that that's a really huge thing 
that for me redeems polygamy. Um, personally, I don't have a problem with polygamy. I haven't really ever had a problem with polygamy because there's a lot of scriptural basis for it. And it stands the scriptural test because the saints moved further out west. Many of them died. You need people to replenish the earth. You need people to replenish the west as they moved out. So because it fits the scriptural test within Jacob 2, I think accepting polygamy is something that for me personally, isn't that difficult. Um, I want to testify that God can ordain polygamy, and I want to testify that God can consecrate polygamy. Um, I know that for a lot of people, this is a really tough issue, but I hope a couple of the things that I shared will be helpful for you in understanding why polygamy can work within our scriptures, why it does work within our scriptures, and why certain women did actually legitimately enjoy polygamy. But Let's move on to the next part of our episode. I feel like that was a really interesting topic. Um, I hope to generate some discussion on that. I know um, a lot of the time women, I feel like, in the church are expected to be upset um, by polygamy, at least culturally. Um, I'm not personally. I do know women who are. don't mean to diminish that experience, just sharing my own experience and how I reconciled it. But we're going to talk a little bit about a lighter subject today for our devotional before we close. But before that, I want to tell you what's happening on the next episode because I'm really excited about the next episode. So our next episode is with Robert Boylan. So I'm going to tell you a bit about Robert Boylan real quick. So Robert Boylan lives in Ireland, um, which is really exciting because I like Irish accents. I actually had the opportunity to hop on an institute class that he taught and it was amazing. And the entire time I was like, wow, I would go to institute more if they all had Irish accents. Just kidding. Um, Not kidding about going institute more but kidding about the irish accents so anyways robert boylan has an amazing blog it's called scriptural mormonism this is probably this blog needs to be just collected together into a book because he tackles so many things so well i'm really excited to have him on because one he can speak quite clearly and two he is just a walking book of references i feel like he's read every single thing that you could read as a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints so that should be a really interesting interesting one we're going to talk about mariology which is quite fun so just a little background we're talking about mariology because we both have connections to catholicism and mariology is a really interesting subject the first conversation we had together was over an article about mariology so that should be a really interesting topic after that we have Tarek delacour which should be an also really fascinating interview we're going to talk about different philosophical approaches to the scriptures specifically his philosophy his philosophical approach which involves empiricism which is we're gonna have a great conversation about evidences and other things i'm really looking forward to it Tarek is a philosophy of science guy he's really fascinating so i think we have some good stuff on deck for fair voice again if you have any suggestions of what you would like me to talk about what you would like me to have what guests you would like me to have on or if you want to come on let me know all i ask is that you send me some of your work beforehand if i you don't think i'm familiar with you um if we're facebook friends i'm probably familiar with you or if you're a professor i'm most likely familiar with you but again just let me know i have some great guests lined up and I'm asking a few more on soon so it should be a good time I just want to express my support to you guys real quick too I feel like this has been an incredible journey for me so far 
definitely been super fascinating to see the reaction to this podcast and I appreciate your patience as I learn. This is the first podcast I've done. As many of you know, I'm 22 years old. I'm on the younger side getting my master's degree and I understand that I have a lot to learn, but I've learned so much from doing this podcast and I hope you've learned a few different things as well. So as we talked about polygamy today, something I wanted to do for our devotional is do 1 Corinthians 13. So I'm going to actually read the entire chapter because it's 13 verses. I'll stop along the way. I'm going to be translating directly from the Greek. I have my Nestle Allen and my NA28 in front of me. So I'll translate directly from the Greek. So it's going to sound different than your KJV, but you can follow along in that. You can follow along in the Weymouth translation if you have it. Follow along in your Greek if you can read it. Let's do this. So to begin... If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I have become as sounding brass or a clanging symbol, like the, the symbol, like I don't have sound effects. Sorry, we're not that cool. Um, and if I should have prophecy and discern all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I should have all the faith, even as to remove the mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. I want to talk about something really interesting. So we have the phrase, but I don't have love. So echo means to have, and if you have it with an adverb, it can mean I am. Um, I don't think you can translate this genuinely as but I don't, but, but I am not love, but I would like to suggest to you that the apostle Paul could have had that in mind and could have been trying to think of it in that way, because you do have an accusative there. So you could make an argument that this is an, an adverbial accusative. And that's why he contrasts this with uthan emi. So uthan emi means, but I, I am nothing because emi is the verb to be. Uthan is again, that accusative so you could make the argument that there is this sort of embodiment of love going on. But moving on. Um, and if I should give away all of my possessions and if I might um, hand over my body so that I can boast or like make myself better, bolster myself up, but I don't have love, I am awarded nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, love does not boast, um, love, uh, sorry, no, love um, is not boastful, that's a better translation, love is not puffed up, it does not shame itself, it seeks not the things of its own, it is not annoyed, it does not account wrongs, and I like this because I this this phrase, it does not account wrongs. It does not keep track of wrongs. How often when we argue with people, whether in our minds or out loud, do we say, but you did this? And I think about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not on the cross saying, but you did this. He was on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Imagine if we all took that attitude, that, that attitude of, guess what? We all screw up. We all do horrible things. We need to just let them go. And I know that that's something I could do better. Let's move on to verse six. It does not delight um, at 
the face of, and that's my being quite liberal with the translation, but it does not delight at the face of unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. I think that this is a really important point that I would like to pause on. So adikia, um, so this comes from, this is alpha primitive. Um, an alpha primitive is the letter A or an alpha that is put in front of a word in order to negate it. It's a Greek term. And then it has dikaia. So this is saying without righteousness. That's what it's saying. Without justice might be a good translation too. That could work. But we, we see that it's a legalistic word that means righteousness. So it does not delight at the face of unrighteousness. I think that this is so important because we have entered into a culture where we believe that love is acceptance and tolerance. And love is acceptance and tolerance, but not in the way that we think it is in our modern culture. What this verse to me is saying is that there is an idea of righteousness and unrighteousness. And this does not have to do with identity, but this has to do with action. So within the Hebrew Bible, we see that there is identity in God, right? Because we are children of God. This is an idea born out in the Hebrew Bible, especially within Psalms. But within the Semitic language, you are not a father, you father. So what I mean by that, I, that's the phrase that I used uh, I heard used by Donald Perry, and I just kind of, I just still use it because I think it's very helpful. The Semitic language, the, the Hebrew language allows us to say that we do things, but we are not, we are not things. So your actions do not reflect on your identity. And this is an idea that I think is lost within modern culture. So when Paul is writing here that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, what he is saying is that our identity exists outside of our actions. And we are called to love identities. We are not called to love actions. So when people will try to say, you know, if you don't accept what I do, you do not love me. That's not a scriptural idea. That's not a good idea because guess what? Love transcends action. Jesus's love for us transcends our sins. That is the fundamental part of the atonement. Stripping that away from the atonement renders the atonement as nothing. So keep in mind that there is an idea of righteousness and unrighteousness. And we can have debates on how to discern that. But I think when it comes down to it, Christ's commandments and standards that are given to us through prophets, through prophets nowadays, through prophets back then, are the standards of righteousness that are being referred to here. Moving on to verse 7, it carries all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never fails. If there are prophecies, they will be pushed away. If there are tongues, they will be quieted. If there is knowledge, it too will pass. In fact, we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but... When the perfect comes together, um, or should come together, the in part stuff will be done away with. I really like this section because I think it goes back to our relationship with Christ, right? So right now we have the opportunity to, at the end we'll see, see through a glass darkly, but we have the opportunity to understand part of the truth. And while we have the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, it does not mean everything's been restored. We see what we see and we have the lenses that we use to interpret what we see, but we know that there's more coming. That's the same with our own lives. We can see ourselves partially. We can see our mortality and we can see into the eternities. I, I like the phrase, sometimes we glimpse eternity, 
Sometimes I glimpse my eternity, but it doesn't last forever. I can't conceptualize perfectly what exaltation will look like. And if you can, that's great. Um, I don't think many people can. But when the perfect comes, when the end comes, when the teleon, when our purpose, when our completion comes and our completion is in Christ, then everything that we did in part will be done away with. I think that's a beautiful sentiment, especially about love, because right now I think we all are trying to love in the way that we know how to. But what consecrates that love is Christ. And what Christ embodies is covenantal relationships. And covenantal relationships, like it or not, are founded upon ordinances and commandments. Our ability to make and keep sacred covenants is based on standards that we must keep. And I understand that that can be kind of tricky because, again, we go back to that ideal of love and then the questions will be, doesn't God want all of his children to return? Of course he does. Doesn't Christ want everyone there? Yes, he will advocate for us. He will. Ad- he is our advocate to the Father. But we do have to demonstrate that we want God, that we are willing to put in the work to become like God. That is why we are saved by grace, but also by works. Because Christ's atonement paid the price for our sins, yes. But whether or not we want to be there, whether or not we care enough to be there is determined by our works. Because if our works do not show that, we will not enjoy the celestial kingdom. I think that is the most loving concept of heaven there is. I think concepts of heaven that everyone goes to heaven, everyone everyone obtains the highest degree of glory within that realm. I think that that's a foolish concept because not everyone will be changed enough to want that. Not everyone does want that. And I think an all-loving God gives us what our true desires are. And our true desires, yes, have give and take, but our true desires can determine where we go. So let's keep reading verse 11 to the end. When I was a little child, I was speaking like a child. I was thinking like a child. I was giving accountings like a child. When I became a man, I did away with the things of the child. In fact, we see presently through a glass in darkness, but then face to face. Presently, I know in part, but then I will completely know, even as I have been completely known. This is one of my favorite verses for so many reasons. So first off, the phrase face-to-face, prosopon, prosopon. So this is a phrase that we see throughout the Greek New Testament, but also if we go to the Septuagint and we're talking about Exodus and we're talking about God seeing Moses face-to-face, this phrase means face to face. It's not just, this phrase is also used classically um, to mean like actually face to face, not just like a hypothetical God that is an idea or, a, you know, a metaphysical being. No, no. This, this phrase is a very literal Greek phrase that means face to face, as a man seeth. And I think that this is one of the coolest phrases ever because this is saying that we see through a glass darkly in obscurity. We see Christ barely. We can see Christ, we can see the light of Christ throughout the world. We can see it throughout other people, but eventually we'll see Christ face to face. And I also really like the phrase that we will we will know as we have been known because Christ knows us perfectly. 
He knows us completely. He knows every single thing about us. And that's that's love, right? Is that understanding, that knowledge. And I think that this was that's what this chapter is saying. Love is empathy. Love is being able to understand someone completely, which we do through Christ. When we call upon Christ and his atonement in our callings, in our relationships, in our lives, we can then have a glimpse of that love that he has for other people, which we do through understanding their struggles. When you have empathy for someone, when you know someone, you can't hate them. One of my favorite TED Talks, this is this is a thought that came to mind. So one of my favorite TED Talks is called Why I Go to KK Rallies as a Black Man. So I would look at this this TED Talk. Um, it's So, sorry, it's called Why I, as a Black Man, Attend KKK Rallies. This is by Daryl Davis. So, Daryl Davis, he is he is a musician. I believe he is a guitarist. Um, he did some jazz. So, he attends KKK Rallies in order to build friendship with the people there. And his friendships have led famously to Roger Kelly as well as other people leaving the neo-Nazi movement in order to become good, upstanding citizens who oftentimes paid for what they did and then left behind the hate that they felt for other people. I think that this is a perfect example of how understanding can enable us to love more. I really like this example because... When you hate someone because of their race, you're hating someone for no good reason. There is no reason that you should do that. That is completely wrong. But what Daryl Davis was able to do was to show people that understanding is what enables people to feel loved and love is what it enables people to leave behind sins, griefs, pains, and afflictions and come unto Christ in some capacity. And what I mean by that is these people didn't join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints necessarily, but they came to a different light of Christ when they left the neo-Nazi movement. And I think in our own lives, something that we can keep in mind is that our attempts to understand people, to know them as they have been known by Christ, will be what enables them to come unto Christ the most. It is those listening and empathetic conversations where people feel like they are heard, where people feel like they are understood, that enables them to see that they are cared about. And we also read, But now abide faith, hope, and love. These three things, but the greatest of these is love. And I love ending on this verse. I love how the first word of this of this entire chapter is aeon, if, and the last word is love. I think that's deliberate on Paul's part. Um, I think that looking at the syntactical structure of this is really important. Ending on love, super important way to do this because love is often the subject throughout this, but here it's the object at the end. Um sorry, the predicate, not the object. It is the predicate at the end. It's agape, hey agape, it's the predicate. So what I love about ending on this idea that love is the greatest out of faith and hope is that it shows us what our priority should be. By learning to love God, by learning to love God's children, I think we grow our faith and our hope more than anything else we do. Some people will ask, what is the best way to understand 
revelation or to receive revelation. And we see throughout the scriptures and throughout prophets that the best way to receive and understand revelation is to be on your feet, to be serving others. A testimony is better gained by bearing it than being on one's knees. A testimony is also better gained by serving other people rather than being so internalized. Because when we serve other people, we're only serving God. And by serving other people, we come to know them. But coming to know other people, we come to know the I am that exists in all of them. And we come to know God personally because God created them. He's the author of their being. He's the author of our being. I want to testify of the love that exists through Jesus Christ and through his atonement. I want to testify that the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only true church on this earth. I testify that Joseph Smith is a prophet of the Lord who has stirred the church. I testify that I testify that Brigham Young was a prophet of the Lord. I testify that he did what the Lord commanded him to do. I know that the Book of Mormon is true. I know that the Book of Mormon and its events really did happen in the way that Joseph described. I know that the Book of Mormon describes an ancient people that was living in the Americas at some place that we don't know necessarily. And I testify that it happened in the way that the book says. I testify that the book was written by multiple people. I testify that the Book of Abraham and the Book of Moses are historical books that Joseph Smith translated through the gift and power of God. I testify that we don't understand everything about the translation, but that they are true historical records. I testify that the Doctrine and Covenants was given to prophets for the bettering of mankind. I testify that the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament were also given to prophets and apostles in order for us to understand Christ better and that all scriptures testify of Christ. I testify that President Nelson and the other apostles of this day are called for us specifically and by hearkening unto their words, we will receive eternal life. I testify that we are better to abide by the precepts and teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints than to speculate on whether or not they are profitable. I testify that everything that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teaches as doctrine will lead to eternal life if we choose to follow it. I testify that that choice is the one choice that we need to make in this life. I say these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So let's talk about the next episode real briefly again. Robert Boylan's coming on. Should be a good time. Then we have Tarek Delacour. And I don't know what I'm going to talk about next Sunday special yet. So I'm open to suggestions. Let me know how it goes. Um, let me know if you liked this episode. This is Hannah Syriac signing off with Fair Voice.